0: Welcome back to Parkside Green's Bible Study. Uh, I hope your first week went well, you enjoyed your small group. Uh, Pastor Steve here, excited to continue our journey uh, through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This week, uh, we move from the parables of the lost sheep and lost coin and lost son to a series of hard sayings of Jesus. Uh, The New Testament scholar F.F. Bruce wrote a book by that title, the hard sayings of Jesus, in which he devoted three chapters just to the material from Luke 16. I mean, nearly every portion of Luke 16 contains a hard saying of Jesus. I struggled in my study this week, and maybe you did too at points, and, and that's okay. Jesus's sayings can be hard in a couple of different ways. They can be hard to understand, and they can be hard to live out. So let's launch into these hard sayings of Jesus. We'll look at them under three main headings. First, surprising commendations, verses 1 to 12. Secondly, striking contrasts in verses 13 to 18. And thirdly, shocking conclusions in verses 19 to 31. Last week, you'll remember, we ended with what is widely considered Jesus' most famous parable the prodigal son, the lost son, and this week we start with what is widely considered Jesus's most difficult parable, the dishonest manager or the unjust steward, and we notice that here Jesus's primary audience is no longer as it was in chapter 15, the tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees and scribes, now it is his disciples, we see in verse 1. So the parable, Charges were brought against a manager uh, that he was wasting the possessions of his rich master. Now, a manager, of course, was a trusted steward who had authority to transact business on behalf of his master, but in this case, he was wastefully mismanaging things. So the master confronted him, what, what's this I hear about you? And he fired him, turn in your accounts. you can no longer be manager. Basically, clear out your desk by the end of the day kind of thing. The manager knows he isn't strong enough to do manual labor to dig. Uh, He's ashamed to beg. So he decides to use his last bit of leverage by cutting the bills of his master's debtors so that in the future they'll owe him favors and maybe they'll take him into their houses. Some recent commentators suggest that the manager was acting legally in removing extra interest or uh, personal surcharge, his own commission from the bills, to gain friends who would then care for him after his firing and this view concedes that, yes, the, the steward previously wasted or squandered the rich man's possessions in verses 1 and 2, and he, he's properly described as dishonest in verse 8, but it emphasizes that the steward's final action of cutting the master's bills is commended as shrewd. It's, it's praised as prudent in verse 8. The advantage of this view is that if the steward was acting legally, then the master's commendation, in verse 8, might make sense. But three questions face this view. Number one, would the steward really have been wise or shrewd to forgo his commission of 50 measures of oil and 20 measures of wheat? That's estimated to be worth a couple of years' salaries. Just to gain the creditor's possible future goodwill, would that have been... Shrewd? Secondly, is there any hard evidence that the steward was merely eliminating his own personal profit, especially in light of the fact that he asks the debtors, how much do you owe my master, verses 5 and 7, and they change the actual written bills, you'll see in verses 6 and 7. Thirdly, doesn't the description of the manager in verse 8 as dishonest or unrighteous or unjust depending on your translation likely referred to what he just did in the previous two verses that is cutting the master's bills so i'm with the traditional interpretation that the manager cheated his master by falsifying the debts in order that after his firing he'd receive favorable treatment he hoped from his former master's debtors The challenge, though, for my view, is explaining how the master could actually commend the steward who illegally cheated him out of a large amount of money. So it's a hard saying, hard saying. I think the key is that Jesus is not affirming a crook for stealing. (laughs) Notice that the manager is not commended for his dishonesty, but rather for his shrewdness or prudence me say it again. Notice that the manager is not commended for his dishonesty, but for his shrewdness or prudence, there in verse 8. In that way, and in that way only, the manager serves as a model in preparing wisely for his future. Jesus' disciples are to be shrewd for God's kingdom of light, just as criminals are for the kingdom of this world. In other words, Jesus' disciples, that's his audience in verse 1, who are the sons of light, we see in verse 8, should not be outshone by the sons of this age, this generation, in shrewdness or wisdom. John Calvin commented, Worldly men are more industrious and clever in taking care of the ways and means of this fleeting world than God's children are in caring for the heavenly and eternal life. Now, I'm not really sure about everything in verses 9 to 12, but in these verses, we see that Jesus' disciples should be more faithful than unbelievers, especially in our use of worldly wealth, verse 9, so that we can demonstrate that we can be trusted as faithful in little and in big things. That's in verse 10. If we're not faithful in handling worldly wealth... Who's going to entrust us with true riches? Verse 11, we should be faithful in how we use what has been entrusted to us. There in verse 12. So bottom line for verses 9 to 12, in light of what we know about the future, eternity, we should make shrewd or wise use of our worldly wealth in the present. Now we move from the surprising commendations of verses 1 to 12 to the striking contrasts of verses 13 to 18. And the first contrast is between a person who loves and is devoted to and serves God and a person who loves and is devoted to and serves money. But can't I love God and money? Jesus says no. No servant can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. There's no both and. It's an either or choice. If you love and serve God, you do not love and serve money. Rather, when we put God first, then our money or resources take their rightful place under God as we steward what God has entrusted to us for his eternal purposes, linking back to the parable Jesus just told. And then Luke tells us that the Pharisees were, in fact, lovers of money, rather than lovers of God. I mean, ouch! Earlier in Luke eleven thirty nine, 39, Jesus had said, You Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed, full of greed and wickedness. And we see the Pharisees now shift from grumbling about Jesus, as they did in chapter 15, to ridiculing him in chapter 16, verse 14. And in response to this ridiculing, Jesus speaks a hard saying to these money-loving Pharisees. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You might look outwardly righteous, and you might fool other people, but you can't fool God. He knows your hearts. Then Jesus explains that the law and the prophets were until the ministry of John the Baptist. and That doesn't mean the law is void. As Jesus clarifies in verse 17, the principles of the Old Testament law still have much to teach us about God and His ways. But since the old covenant age has ended, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached by Jesus, by his followers, and everyone forces his way into it. What? (laughs) I mean, that's another hard saying. What does that mean? We know from the rest of Scripture that people enter God's kingdom by faith and repentance. They don't force their way in. And that's why I favor the translation found in the ESV footnote down at the bottom of the page, that everyone is forcefully urged into it. That's exactly how a form of this verb, biazatai, is translated in Luke 24, 29, later in the gospel. We don't force our way into God's kingdom, but through the preaching of the good news, everyone is strongly urged to enter into God's kingdom. Well, as if those weren't enough hard sayings packed into one chapter, verse 18 records Jesus saying that everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman, divorced from her husband, commits adultery. Now, going back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see God's design for marriage as a, a lifelong covenant between husband and wife. So we should never pursue divorce in order to marry someone else. God's design teaches us to strive for marital oneness. Uh, Divorce and remarriage are serious issues, and that's exactly why we want to take into account what the whole counsel of God, what what all Scripture says on the subject. So you might want to check out Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, where Jesus allows divorce in cases of sexual immorality, as well as 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 16, where Paul allows divorce in cases of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. Finally, we move from striking contrast in verses 13 to 18 to shocking conclusions in verses 19 to 31. And one thing that makes this last section a hard saying is debate over whether the the introductory formula, there was a rich man, indicates that this is a parable, that is a a story with fictional characters to convey spiritual truths. Or does the fact that Lazarus and Abraham are named, and we know Abraham is definitely a real person, indicate that the, the story portrays real historical events, perhaps teaching the actual after-death destiny of two real people who would have been known to Jesus and his audience. But if it's an historical account, then, then it must be asked whether it's intended to teach details about the afterlife. For instance, will unbelievers actually be able to see and to talk to Abraham, as we see in verses 23 and 24? And will people in paradise want to but be unable to cross over to Hades, as is intimated in verse 26? I can't settle this debate conclusively, and I don't have time to retell the whole story, but here are some main things and plain things I think we can agree on and and learn from. The poor man Lazarus teaches us that those who suffer materially he's in poverty, and physically, he's got hunger, he's got sores, the dogs are licking them. Those who have this kind of an experience in this life, they may experience a great reversal and be comforted in the life to come. And the rich man teaches us that those who use their material possessions for self-indulgent living and luxury, fine clothes, daily, sumptuous feasting, the party just goes on and on, but neglect to show compassion to those in need of money, Lazarus is poor, medical care, Lazarus has sores all over his body, food, he, Lazarus desired just the leftovers from the rich man's table, that such people may receive good things in this life, but they're gonna experience torment and agony in the life to come if they do not repent in response to the words spoken by God's messengers, Moses and the prophets. Put another way, failure to use our resources to help the poor and afflicted around us indicates there's something wrong in our relationship with God. Those who fail to repent, those who fail to love their neighbors as themselves, will regret it. We see his anguish and flames, torment and agony. Uh, going back to the parable at the start of this chapter, the rich man was not faithful in his use of worldly wealth. He did not make a friend in Lazarus. He didn't have anyone to receive him into eternal dwellings. He's, he's excluded from heaven, and he can no longer call the shots or reverse his situation there in Hades. It's a shocking conclusion. As one commentator put it, the rich man pays attention to Lazarus too late. He sees the unbridgeable chasm too late. He worries about his brothers too late, and he heeds the law and the prophets too late. Then in addition, we have Abraham. He, he teaches us that it's a mistake to believe, as some do, that the rich are blessed by God and the poor are punished by God. Uh-uh. Abraham also shows us that our state in the afterlife is fixed. It's irreversible. There's no further opportunity to cross from one side to the other. Verse 24 shows us that this merciless, rich man is now seeking mercy. He he wants just a touch of water to cool his burning tongue. But this merciless man will find no mercy. Also, if we look back uh, in terms of Abraham to Genesis chapter 13, we're reminded that he himself, Abraham, had great wealth. He had a lot of livestock. He had a lot of silver and gold. But he is saved by his faith in God. So the rich man's problem here was not having wealth, but failing to use his wealth for godly purposes. Finally, we've got the rich man's five brothers. They're, they're still living, and they teach us that the problem is not with a lack of clarity of God's revelation. The problem is with people failing to listen to God's messengers, whether it's Moses and the prophets or someone who's raised from the dead. <laughs> and in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has already raised a widow's son from the dead. In chapter seven, he's raised Jairus's daughter uh, from the dead in chapter eight. And of course, Jesus himself will be raised from the dead in chapter 24. But still, many people will continue in unbelief and unrepentance. If they aren't convinced by God's word, uh, Moses and the prophets, it seems they won't be convinced by anything. Those who reject God's self-revelation, they cannot protest their punishment. They should have known better, as this rich man should have. And, and those who are like the brothers, who have not yet repented but are still alive, they should do so. Turn to God while there's still time. Lots of hard sayings here, but also lots of important possible applications. And I think most of them focus rightly on wealth and the afterlife. Those are themes that just run throughout Luke chapter 16. Number one, which of my resources could I use more wisely in light of eternity? Which of my resources could I use more wisely In light of eternity or put another way what does it look like for me to be eternal kingdom shrewd secondly God knows my heart if I'm honest do I love money God knows my heart if I'm honest do I love money another way to put it where is my allegiance toward money competing with my allegiance to God thirdly is there any area of my life where i'm being self-indulgent while neglecting the basic necessities the physical needs of others is there any area of my life where i'm being self-indulgent living in, in luxury while neglecting the basic physical needs of others and fourth and finally thank god for the promise of good things and comfort in heaven thank god for the promise of good things, and comfort in heaven as we see Lazarus enjoying them. let's pray. Heavenly Father, we tell us that if we lack wisdom, that uh, we're to ask you, and you'll give generously to us without finding fault. And so we do ask for wisdom, Lord, in uh, stewarding the things that you have entrusted to us in light of your eternal purposes. Lord, help us to be found faithful uh, with our use of worldly wealth in light of your eternal kingdom. And we also know, Lord, that uh, you put people in our lives um, and give us opportunities to assist them. And so we pray that we'll never become so blinded by our own luxuries, our own pleasures, that we neglect the Lazaruses, that... uh, you bring across our paths. Lord, we want to have your heart uh, toward all people and truly love our neighbors as ourselves. And we know that's only possible uh, through the power of the Spirit and through the grace of our Lord Jesus. So it's through him that we ask these things. Amen.